0: Hey guys, Mike here, and welcome to another episode of the Master Mix Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today I'm interviewing Matt Squire, who is a multi-platinum record producer, engineer, mixer, songwriter. He's done a lot of great work, and he's been very, very successful in the rock and punk genres. He's worked with bands like Sum 41, Simple Plan, All Time Low, Good Charlotte, The U's, Taking Back Sunday, and a whole plethora of bands. But not only is he popular in the rock and punk genres, he's also very successful in the mainstream pop genre, and he's worked with some major artists out there. He's worked with people like Ariana Grande, Katy Perry, Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez, Kesha, One Direction. Like, the guy's credits are insane. You know, like, it takes a lot of skill to become successful in one genre alone, right? But not only did Matt start in the punk genre, but he expanded his audience to the mainstream genre, which that is a hard market to break into because there are a lot of artists, there's a lot of competition there with producers and writers, and he's had success in it. So it takes a very important set of skills to be able to actually accomplish that. So that's something that we get into in this interview. We talk a lot about songwriting and what it takes to craft really good songs. And it's interesting because Matt has had the ability to work with some of the top songwriters that exist. He's worked with guys like Max Martin and Dr. Luke and a whole bunch of other guys. So he's had the ability to learn from the best of the best and refine his own songwriting process as a result of everything that he's learned from these guys. And we talk about that a little bit more in this conversation. And I I think that that's a very important thing for songwriters to develop, because there's so many guys that just write whenever they're feeling inspired or motivated. And that can be a very dangerous way to write, because you might not feel motivated very often, you know. And when it comes to these professional songwriters they are constantly working on new songs, and they're able to write even when they're not feeling inspired, because they've just developed this skill set, and they know how to approach writing, and, and they go at it a different way than most amateur writers do. It's, uh, it's much more of a process, it's a mindset, and it's, it's very interesting to learn how these people write. So I think that for songwriters listening to this, you're going to learn a lot from that part of our conversation. Another area that Matt is also very passionate about is in the royalty collections area. So it's one thing to be a songwriter, but it's another to actually make a living off of it. And that's something that we discuss in this interview as well, because, you know, there are agencies out there that are collecting royalties that need to be paid out to songwriters. And a lot of people don't even know that these agencies exist. So if you've written songs, you may actually be owed money, and someone may be holding onto your money, waiting to pay you. And you might not even know about it. So... That's something that Matt gets into in this interview, and he also just started a brand new company called TrueStream, which is designed to help in the royalty collections process and to make things more transparent when it comes to the interactive streaming world. So companies like Spotify, he's really making a big push to have transparency and make sure that writers are given the proper amount of money that they're owed and that Everything's transparent. Nobody's hoarding money. Nobody's hiding money. And I think that he reveals a lot of interesting stats about how the streaming world works and how these royalties are paid out. So I I definitely think you're going to learn a lot from this interview. And if you're a songwriter, you're going to find this very, very beneficial. And even as an engineer, you will still learn a lot from this episode too. So let's jump right into it. So Matt, thank you for being on the podcast.
1: And thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Awesome. So for people who might not necessarily be familiar with who you are and how you got started in all of this, can you give us a little bit of your story?
1: Absolutely. So uh, I came up as a hardcore punk rock kid in Washington, D.C., going to Fugazi shows and you know buying Discord records and was in bands in, in that scene for a number of years uh, with my good friend Brian McTernan. Um, We were in a band called Ashes Together. I was in Battery for a day. And I was touring the country since about age 14 in that capacity. DIY, punk shows, VFWs, basements, that kind of thing. And I was always the kid who had the four-track and later an eight-track cassette. And I was always recording our band and I was always recording other bands. And that sort of went on for a while it was a lot of fun for me and and I sort of learned early and then as things progressed and and I got older I decided you know this is maybe something that I want to pursue as a career and I I got really lucky really early on in that one of my first independent records that I produced in my 20s was a band called Panic of the Disco I produced uh, Fever You Can't Sweat Out and that record was a really big success. We went on to sell 3 million albums worldwide, and it sort of catapulted me into being a record producer and songwriter, and that's what I do now. I went on to do a lot more records in that scene, in that email alternative scene, 303, All Time Low, Boys Like Girls, The Used, Taking Back Sunday, and then... I sort of segued into doing something completely different as I became more of a songwriter and um, started working on pop records. So I was I was sort of doing this at the same time. I was doing a record with the band HIM, His Infernal Majesty, in my afternoon and evenings, and then I was working with Selena Gomez in my mornings. <laughs> um, and that was sort of my transition time, and it was it was fun for me because. I'm really just a student of music and a music lover. And it was interesting for me to be working in these totally different worlds simultaneously because there's actually a lot of connections between them. And a lot of the ways that we perceive and, and see music and create music are really similar, even though the genres and the results can be quite different. So it was really fun for me just as a as a fan. And then... The pop thing sort of took off for a while. I ended up working on the first One Direction album. I also worked heavily with Ariana Grande in the beginning of her career and um, was heavily involved in in her first album process. I worked with Kesha. I worked with Demi Lovato and enjoyed some success in that world. And really, again, the value was as a student, I got to sort of work with a lot of pop producers and writers i got to work with dr luke i got to work with max martin and just see you know how do these guys do it and what's different about what their approach is as opposed to mine and what can i learn and you know what do i not want to adopt and and all that stuff sort of factored in so it was really really cool to go over and and just learn a different genre at the end of the day I was sort of at a crossroads between pop and rock or punk, which is really my native tongue. And I felt like I had to focus on one or the other. And I just, you know, being a punk rock kid from DC and, and, and growing up in bands and, and in the DIY scene, I just couldn't see myself doing pop forever. I probably will do some stuff in that genre again uh, at some point, but I really wanted to focus back on working with bands. I, I really love the band chemistry and mentality and sort of the feeling that a band is the sum of its parts. And if you don't have this bass player, it will be a completely different sounding album than if you do. I'm sort of really into that concept. So I've, I'm back, sort of more focused on bands uh, since since focusing back in that world. I just did the new Under Oath album, Erase Me. I just did the, the did the new Amity Affliction album, Misery, which just came out. Um, I just did the Plain White T's new album, Parallel Universe, that also just came out. And uh, I'm about to go back in with the Maine, uh, who's a band that I worked with over ten years ago, and uh, we're sort of reuniting to do a new record so really really excited for that
0: That's awesome Yeah I think it's um it takes a special skill set to be able to succeed in both pop and in the punk genre as well and a lot of times those two genres don't even see eye to eye you know like all like the punk guys will be like oh pop music's for sellouts and whatever I, I don't agree with that but but um but you know there's like that attitude and then at the same time too there's like the the pop artists who are like oh the punk music is like so raw and whatever what do you think it is about your skill set that allowed you to succeed in both of those?
1: You know, I think really it's that student mentality of I just don't really know. I don't have a judgment one way or the other, you know, as to what was good, bad or, or ugly or if, or if anybody really has it all figured out. I was more like, I wonder if I could was was really the thought be, behind doing some more pop stuff was just like, I just wonder if I could. <laughs> you know, I like, wonder if I could try and take this on. And I also really wanted to learn how to... Because electronics programming, drum programming and synth programming has always been an element of my production. Since Panic, it's always been part of the records or since the receiving end of Sirens or some of my early work there's always been programming sort of laced in over the top of organic instruments. Um, When I started looking at pop, it was how do I make like the programming and the, and drum machines and synths, how do I make that sound as big as organic instruments? And I really just didn't know at that time I was working with a band called 303 and They didn't want live drums in the recordings. They didn't need guitars or need them super loud in the mix. They were an electro band. And at that time, I was using Reason. Reason tends to sound very small, although they've got great sounds. The actual fidelity and the actual quality is, is thinner and smaller than what I wanted to hear from the band. So I just kind of was like, how do they do it? How do these... Um, pop producers make everything sound so huge without using the organic instruments that I'm used to and so a lot of a lot of it was I just want to learn how to do this and then from there you know it becomes fun and it becomes a fun challenge to in pop you know you're not necessarily capturing players you are the player and so that was really fun for me to actually make the beats actually play the instruments and actually write the songs that was it's a lot more work it's a lot more challenge and you know there were definitely some rewards on rewards to doing that
0: for sure i think that's really interesting the way you kind of put it about the live instruments versus the the more programmed elements to it and you said you got started playing in bands right so you obviously totally. were part of that live instrument phase At what point did you start to think, well, maybe I should dive into these electronic instruments a little bit more?
1: You know, I think it was really um, a sign of the times. I think all of us in almost every genre were trying to process what is the computer going to contribute to record making and what is it going to screw up? Um, We were all, you know figuring out auto-tune and how much of it to use and how much of it to not and Melodyne. And, and we were all sort of hearing people make records in their bedroom that were rivaling things that had been made, you know, in, in these legendary studios. So I think, you know, I think a lot of it was cultural. A lot of it was, what is this going to do? How am I going to integrate this into what I do? How much of it do I need? What do I want to learn? Um, and I took it really far. I mean, I worked with a lot of dance artists too. I worked with Cruella and I got to sit alongside producers that were signed to Skrillex and, you know, learn that too and absorb that. And that's a, that's a whole different art form, even than the pop producers, you know, the, uh, dance producers are taking their sound design and taking their computer programming skills to a, a completely different level. Um, and it, It's for me, I just felt like I got to at least have a working knowledge of all of this to call myself a producer and to make sure that I'm able to provide anything for an artist that I'm working with that, you know, that that they that they want to hear on their records. I just wanted to learn all those skills.
0: I love that. Yeah, I think that that's that's an amazing uh, approach to it, because yeah, you're right. You you don't know what you're going to be thrown in the studio. So, you know, you need to be able to just jump in and
1: own it as opposed to just kind of be like, uh, I don't
0: know how to do this. Uh, <laughs>
1: you know, I mean, that's that's the reality. Right. Is is as a producer, what is your value and what are you bringing? And for me, and I think we all have different definitions of it for me, the the real value is my instincts and and sort of my experience and hey why don't you try it like this or what if we did it like that it used to be that I was the one who knew how to set up the microphones and you know figure out phase cancellation and and work pro tools and stuff like that but you know a high percentage of my artists know how to do that now Mm -hmm. so you know it's important for me to first of all Know all those skills, no Pro Tools, no Logic, no Ableton, and be able to keep up with an artist who actually might even know those programs better than me. That was important to me so that we're all still speaking the same language. And then further to that, it's okay, well, there's always, always, always throughout history and throughout the future, there's always going to be a tremendous value in having an objective. Ear in the room, a producer, to say, you know what, you should really think about trying it like this. Because as an artist, you're attached, you have emotional attachments to everything that you do. It's great, you know, that, that as an artist, you may not be hearing things in an objective manner. That's a, that's a great skill as an artist. It's imperative then that you have somebody else in there to go, you know what, I know what you're trying to do. But if you just raised the key or changed the tempo or altered this melody slightly, you might achieve your goal, you know, 200 times more effectively. So, you know, the the role of the producer has changed in some ways in terms of, you know, the language we use, the programs that we use, the skills, the role of the producer as that objective ear has, has not changed, in my opinion, and it, and it's just as important as it ever was.
0: Definitely, and and to your point of, you know, a lot of your artists already know how to set up a microphone and, and get going. I mean, really, there's not that much to it. Once you've got it all set up, a lot of these people, if they're just singing, they've got their setup done once and they're good to go. You know, they've just got to press That's record, right. right? So uh, it really does come down to what you can offer aside from just the technical setup of it. And uh, I love that. Yeah, I think that that's a really important thing, because I think about that all the time, too, is these days, home studios are just so prevalent, and everybody's got access to stuff. But really, like, what is it that separates myself or yourself or anyone else from anyone who's just recording in their bedroom, right? So that's great. Yep. Now, you had mentioned when you first started about having this kind of learning mindset, and how you eventually started working with bigger producers max martin dr luke all that kind of stuff how did that come about was that something that you kind of just started interning in or how what was that connection
1: So it was all organic. Um, One of uh, there was a producer that works with Dr. Luke named Benny Blanco, who he worked on a little bit of the 303 album. So we met and that's how I met Luke. And then Luke had me work on some rock remixes of Katy Perry tracks that he was doing. So like he was doing the pop version of I Kissed a Girl and he had me do the alternative rock version that actually went on K-Rock and played in 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 that format and and did really well. And he had me do the same for hot and cold. So the the work together was, you know, really him wanting me to bring some rock to pop and me wanting to branch out and do and do some pop. It was it was sort of a mutually beneficial thing. So that was all organic. Uh the Max Martin connection was through my friend Savan kateka who recruited me to work on One Direction and then emblem three and then a whole host of different projects shared Lloyd and you know a a bunch of stuff that that Max was working on and I got to work with a bunch of the writers in that camp and and got to work you know when you're working in that camp Max will come in a few times a day uh to the studio and sort of check in and give you suggestions and give you pointers and and stuff like that and um He's just a, he's a brilliant guy and, uh, really, really knowledgeable. And I learned a ton just from hanging out over there and just from the suggestions and guidance that he was able to give, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really, uh, it was a lucky thing. I I've, I've sort of been a fly on every wall. I've worked with tricky in the dream. I've worked with Jared Rotom, you know, there's there's so many great producers in all genres, and I've gotten the chance to work with a, a whole host of them.
0: I think that's amazing. And also just kind of ties back to everything we've talked about so far, where when you're working in those different genres, you're learning new stuff that you can then tie together. And I, I think that that's awesome, because that, that's how you create fresh sounds, is by combining genres and bending them and doing all sorts of innovative stuff in that in that realm, right?
1: I really believe in that, and also that that hybridization has never been more important than it is now and the reason is just the way people listen to music has changed so drastically whereas when i was a kid i w- would walk into tower records and there were these separated genre specific um locations for where i would find different kinds of music that i wanted to buy uh now you know you know the listener has changed the listener can be sitting on their computer or on their phone and skip from genre to genre in a matter of seconds and really absorb a lot of different kinds of things and they and and i think listeners are less genre specific than they than they were you know there's plenty of listeners who like just as much um soundcloud hip-hop as they do metal and so as as, as writers and producers and artists, what we want to do is we want to celebrate those listeners and say, hey, you know what? We could actually marry those styles into one song. And because you like all this different stuff, you might be excited to hear uh, a dynamic song that actually encapsulates a few different genres at the same time. Um, So, you know, I think it's I think it's important for us to be open to that and to really try and use it as a positive that that listeners have so much access to so much so many different styles of music these days.
0: For sure. I'd love to learn a little bit more about your songwriting process, especially given the fact that you have worked with people like Max Martin, who obviously that guy is a songwriting king. So, you know. I'd love to, like, I know some people only write songs whenever inspiration hits, and then there's other people who have more of a process behind how they write, and, um, you know, it's, it's much more of a, it's more of a process, and it's it's not just like, you know, I came up with this thing in my mind, I can, I'm going to put this down now, like, they, there's a structure to it. What kind of style do you gravitate towards?
1: So, it's funny, because it's changed over the years, and it changed because I got to work around Max. Um... You know, when I first started out, uh, both with writing and production, but but particularly with writing, you know, I hear things in my head, and I have to like rush to my phone to make a voice memo, and that is the inspiration. And then I would rush to get my guitar and turn it into something else. And really, I was under the false impression that I had to capitalize on that inspired moment in a rush um and that if i didn't write the song in that half an hour an hour or that burst of inspiration that the song actually would not be good i I really believed that and when i got around some of the pop writers especially the swedish pop writers it, it blew my mind because they would have that same inspired moment it still starts with an inspiration rushing to your Phone to do a voice memo or or grabbing a a guitar or whatever it is, it's that exact same moment. But then the refinement from that point on can last months. It can be, you know, what I loved that inspired melody that I came up with, but I just I think I could do a better pre course. I'm going to try and beat it, and it's been three weeks, you know, and and that was fascinating to me because I just I didn't trust that i felt like editing and sort of over analyzing and obsessing on something that was creative could only make it worse and i really think that it's been a great lesson for me because it's totally not true the inspiration is one thing and that's awesome but there's a sort of high associated with inspiration that will trick you into thinking that your pre-course might be better than it is although your course may be amazing. So, being able to go back, you know, a day later, two days later, get somebody else to to listen to it and listen to what they think maybe should change or or whatever, all these different editing and refinement processes can actually make the song a million times better and you know, I've had I've had tremendous successes with songs that were written in those bursts and I've tremendous successes with songs that were toiled over and every little detail was, was obsessed over and changed and reworked and and revised. And, and there really is no one way or the other being the predictor of success. So, you know, the, the lesson from the Swedes was to raise the bar to a ridiculous place where you really are challenging yourself to come up with something that is bulletproof that nobody could dislike. And that's really part of their process. And I I incorporated that into mine as well. I would say I'm sort of halfway between those poles now. I think I follow my gut a little bit more than most, but that I've learned how to refine things along the way.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you could always be criticizing your work and always refining. So at what point do you know that you just need to stop?
1: You know, my big thing is that the speakers don't lie. And, you know, I listen to music all all day long, just like all of us do. And I, I can judge another piece of music pretty readily in terms of whether I think it's going to be successful and whether I like it. And so what I've learned to do over the years is treat the things that I'm working on with that same objective ear and to really do a lot of listens, you know, when, when I'm in the studio, uh, I do a lot of listen, listen backs, you know, it could be an hour after we've been messing with something it could be two hours after we've been messing with something, but I always take a pause and go, Hey, let's do a top to bottom. Let's just listen because then I'm able to hear the song as if it was a song that I was buying or a song that I was streaming and, you know, really look at it, sort of from an objective perspective and know what to change and know what to fix. So it's, it's, it's hard, you know, to always know when it's done, but I would say at least from my point of view, it's when me and, uh, the rest of the, the artists in the room or writers in the room are all having trouble coming up with a suggestion. I, I just did a song with motionless and white And, you know, we hit a moment after a few days where we're listening to the song and going, yeah, I don't know, you know, like, what, what do you want to change? Like, it's feeling pretty good. And, and for a band like that, who's super successful and, and also very particular and very detail oriented, and for me, uh, you know, very detail oriented guy, if we're running out of details, then we're probably pretty close to done. And then take a couple days off, maybe go revisit and, and check it with fresh ears and maybe hear a couple more tweaks. But that's, that's sort of, uh, that's sort of the way I've learned to do it. It's totally improvised. You know, you, you really have to just trust your ear and, and listen back on the speakers and, and be, and be conscious of the fact that like, you know, you could trick yourself. So don't, you know, you really want to just like, Evaluate it as if it was somebody else's work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm curious too. You say you do a lot of songwriting with with other or a lot of co-writing with people, and I imagine that you can't always walk into those sessions with a ton of ideas in mind. Like, there's probably got to be days where you're like, okay, hey, we're going to meet on this day," and th- then that day comes, and you're like, "Oh man, I don't have anything in mind." <laughs> like,
1: uh, has- I try. I tr- I've done it before. I try not to do that. I try and come in now with two like beats that i've made on logic even if it's a rock band like i'll do like fake real dramas or something like that but i try and come in with like two verse course uh ideas we may not use them you know maybe the the artist has something as well you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but i try i try and have some sort of nugget of preparation and and the reason is is like i've had good results starting from scratch and sort of being like yeah i don't know what we're going to do today but I've had better results from like really kind of imagining, hey, what 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 do I think this artist, what kind of vibe would be successful for this artist? what What's my take without them in the room, without any influencers, you know what do I think would be a a successful fresh take for for them or something that they couldn't do with anybody else? And I try and I try and put those ideas down uh, with a couple of logic beats. Because it's easier for me to then play it for the artist and have them either, you know, like toss it and say, "Oh my god, that's ridiculous," or go, "Oh my god, that is super cool." What if we did it like this? Um, You know, it's just an easier starting point than being like, "Hey, you know, we should do something like this." (laughs) And it's it's sort of it's sort of amorphous, and everybody has different ideas of that. I find that if I actually sketch it that people know what I'm thinking and they can either it it doesn't mean that that the artist or writer needs to use it it's just a good healthy way to set things off
0: yeah so do you find that you've developed that skill as a result of building habits versus relying on motivation like do you schedule times of the day to just work on writing or do you only write when that initial idea comes in and then you do it and then then you can focus on the rest of it with other people.
1: Yeah, it's it's weird. It's like you know, I, I I probably I probably would say that when I know I have a writing session coming up, I I make it a point to sketch a couple ideas, and it's usually like the day before. Um, I don't schedule just solo writing time for myself, um, although sometimes I think that I should but i don't do it i i don't know why i think maybe mostly because i'm a co-writer you know there's people especially in the pop world where they're just writers and they're working with other writers at all times and not necessarily interfacing with the artists for me i'm always co-writing with directly with an artist pretty much always Mm -hmm. uh at least in the rock world when i was in pop it was different but um in the rock world it's it's directly with an artist so I am really thinking specifically about what works for them. I know that the session's coming up and I go, oh, you know, I better get my two ideas in, you know, to get ready for this session. And that could be the morning of the session. It could be the night before, Uh, you know, could be a couple of days before, but it's usually not.
0: Yeah. And I think with co-writing or any sort of collaboration, it's really playing off of everybody's strengths in order to make something that's really solid. Like you even just said to yourself, you you consider yourself like a co-writer. Um, so what is it that makes you feel like you're a co-writer versus just like a solo writer? Is it like Is it a set of skills that you feel that you really just bring to the table specifically that helps you in a co-writing situation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it in a very different way than, you know, than maybe some traditional songwriters who are, who are trying to cultivate their own sound or, you know, sort of make it all about, uh, their, their thing. I personally don't have a thing, uh, as a producer or a writer. So for me, I'm just trying to get into the character of the artist that I'm working with. So I look at myself as a co-writer, um, because the goal for me is to bring out the best in them and not for me to have some sort of signature or some sort of stamp i uh, I have never gone for that as a producer and I've never gone for that as a writer. I'm more of a chameleon. I'm more of a you know what what can I do to be that other voice in the room that brings out the best in you so so I, I label myself a co-writer because the mission really is about the artists the, the the mission has nothing to do with with my own agenda
0: mm-hmm. and when you're switching between different genres like the the pop punk stuff or the mainstream pop artists um you'd mentioned you try to get inside of their head and, and think about what works best for them and for their sound a lot of times like it, do you find that you're referencing other artists out there to get that inspiration or
1: do they come with sometimes. you sometimes yeah. Yeah, sometimes. And, and a lot of times it's like from some like totally different world. Like I like a lot of what's going on on alternative radio at the moment. Like I like sewn a lot. I like healthy. Um, I like, you know, sort of in looking at that world and going, okay, we may not be making something from that world, but what could we, what could we sort of borrow as inspiration or you know what, what kind of tricks are we hearing here that that actually might lend themselves really well to pop or to rock?
0: Yeah, I, I get that for sure. So then, in your opinion, at the end of all of this, when you're when you're done writing, what do you think ultimately makes a song good?
1: You know, it's a really tough question, right? Because we all have different views of that, and we all have different goals. My goal as a part of this whole equation is to connect. I think that you know songs are songs and albums are sort of these vehicles to help lots of people either get in touch with or express emotions that they may not be able to express or get in touch with on their own. Uh, a lot of a lot of humans are stifled in those ways and you know don't really have an outlet. Don't really have a vehicle to get in touch with something that 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 may be very important for them to to face. And so, for me, if a song is good, that means that it connected and it helped uh, with that mission. so it's it's tough because I've had songs that I thought were really, you know, built for that and emotional and didn't connect with that many people. And I go, well, by my definition, maybe something's off, you know, because if we're really trying to help connect and it reached five people, then something wasn't right. Um, then I've had songs that I didn't expect to have a massive reaction Go number one, and then I have to look and go, all right well, what was the sentiment? you know, what did that? Was it just a silly song? you know, was it just catchy or was there something that we expressed and that we got right that resonated with a lot of people and and helped them either forget or help them feel something or, or whatever it was. So for me, you know good is defined by did it connect? and in if so, you know, what impact could it possibly have had? And and um, that's sort of how I look at it. That's that's after all of these years doing this. That's sort of my stated goal. And you know, if a, if a song is good, it really had that power.
0: Definitely, yeah. Now, I guess also tying back to some of my previous questions, when it comes to different genres, every genre kind of has its own defining characteristics that make it sound. Like pop music or punk music or whatever, right? Um, and I find that when it comes to pop songs, there's a really big emphasis on vocals and vocal harmonies and layers and backups and all that kind of stuff. And I think that that's something that a lot of other genres struggle with. And so that's why I, I like that's the defining thing, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to pop music is just you get all these vocal layers. It's all about the singer. But when I work with a lot of people, maybe this is just my experience, but and maybe with the caliber of artists that you're working with, it's completely different. But do you find that harmonies are a major thing like that people struggle with writing as well? Like when you're working with an Ariana Grande or someone like that, are they coming to the table with these ideas in mind? Or is that something that you find yourself frequently taking on in the task of being a producer?
1: Um, it depends on the artist. Ariana is really, really good at coming up with harmonies. And we actually used to um, toss them back and forth and, you know... I would, I would, you know, sort of sing something out and she would go, no, let me do it like this. And, you know, she she was very sophisticated with her, her harmonic sense. And, and, um, you know, so it can be a rapport like that. Um, there are, uh, some artists that I have that don't have that sensibility and I'll come up with it. And I can usually just sing it out every once in a while. If I have a complex melody, I'll grab a guitar so I can make sure that I'm, you know, matching up harmonically and not crossing or not making a rub um and then i've had artists that are like very sophisticated who like no theory and who can take into account not just how their harmony relates to the lead vocal but also how their harmony fits in with the chord structure underneath so that they're they're pleasing both uh sides you know you've got a Uh, a a melody you've got chords and then you've got harmonies that work diatonically with both Mm -hmm. um and some of those people who are really sophisticated with that fascinate me because they will come up with things that i that i wouldn't i'm usually more connected to how does this relate to the melody and every once in a while i go oh no this doesn't work because there's a, a seventh in the chord or something like that but but you know, there's artists that I've worked with that are really sophisticated with the harmonics and it's impressive to me to, to see somebody go, no, it's cool. Create a rub for one bar because it's going to resolve, you know, in the next and it, it's going to be really cool.
0: Yeah, that's cool. So are there any techniques or is there like a, like almost like a checklist of ideas you go through in your mind of, okay, well we should try a third or a fifth or, or something like that. Like, do you go through a little mental checklist of options to try, or is it kind of just experimenting? Yeah, I
1: mean, it's it's experimenting. You know, the third is obviously a go-to, and then you know, certain times it doesn't feel right or it feels too um, too sort of expected. Um, so then you know, we we can mess with fourths and, and fifths, and and you know, a lot of times I'll do a pedal, you know, where like one note is going across moving melodies uh that can work really well too you know it's all different sometimes in pre-production i create them with a plug with little altar boy um that sound toys plugin. I, lo- I love that i and was I- messing
0: around with that yesterday for a client as well
1: nice yeah it's super sick and you know uh sometimes it actually ends up on the records uh depending on how pop it is uh you know there's a lot of pop projects that you know where the artists are like no 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 I actually want your computer harmonies and I'm like yeah. <laughs> it's funny cuz even though
0: it sounds like so robotic in solo it often works great just tucked in the mix
1: totally and and it's also become Part of the sound of the records that we hear today, it it, it it is part of what we hear. So I'm I'm sometimes surprised when artists ask me to keep it, and then sometimes I go, yeah, that'll be really cool. But um, a lot of times, even just when I'm experimenting, I'm using that as a tool because I may draw in different harmonies than than I would sing out, and that could create something unique and and really like you know we've made so much music as a culture. So pushing the envelope is always important. So if a a harmony can be unique, I'm always going to go for that. If it's as long as it's good, you know, I'm always going to go for that. And so using computers to generate them can sometimes give you different results.
0: Yeah, for sure. I love that. And there's obviously like there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who want to pursue songwriting as a career. And obviously you've built a very successful career songwriting for other people. And it seems like the lifeblood of a songwriter's career really depends on royalties. And I was wondering if you could briefly touch on the various types of royalties that are available to songwriters and, and how people go about collecting those.
1: Sure. Um, so, you know, there, there's there's a number of different royalty streams, and I think it's a very convoluted and tough topic. I would first recommend that anybody getting into songwriter production or uh, becoming an artist actually really studies what they are, all, what they're all about and how are they generated and who collects them. You know, even if you're a TuneCore artist just starting out, there is a lot of literature on the TuneCore site about the different royalty streams that they collect, the ones that they don't. What they recommend for the ones that they don't. Um, as a songwriter, you know you're looking at mechanical royalties and you're looking at performance royalties. Performance royalties are when the the song that you wrote is performed. Now it could be performed as the master version of whatever song it is, or it could be performed as a cover version. Either way, you are supposed to garner a royalty for that, and the Societies that collect collect those royalties for you, um, there are four in, in the states. There's ASCAP, BMI, CSEC, and GMR. I'm an ASCAP writer. ASCAP and BMI are the two biggest, and I get checks periodically from ASCAP, and it's for the performance of my works, whether it was the actual master being performed or whether it was a live version. I receive royalties for all of that. Those are performance royalties. They're regulated by Congress. The rates are set by the CRB um, here in in Washington, D.C. And there's a a whole world of um, legislative activity and lobbying uh, around those royalties and around mechanical royalties. Mechanical royalties for songwriters are royalties that we receive every time our actual master is uh streamed or spun or played like the actual recording the actual recording and that's the distinction and songwriters and, and producers need to sort of understand that that distinction is okay is this the master recording that we released you know, on the EP or on TuneCore or on Spotify or whatever it is? Or is it a live version or a cover version of the song? There's a big distinction because the mechanical royalty is only attached to the actual production and the actual recording. As a producer, I also receive a portion of master royalties, which are attached to the actual recording as well. Those are master royalties are, are different than the other two. Master royalties are you know, usually collected by record labels on behalf of artists. And then artists will send a letter of direction to record labels to say, okay, we get 16% of that royalty and we're directing you to pay Squire four because he's our producer. So those are my revenue streams that I'm focused on. And um, the world of royalty collection and accounting has gotten monumentally more convoluted with interactive streaming interactive streaming is is not like pandora radio it's like on demand it's like if you're on spotify or if you're on apple and you're saying hey i want to listen to this song right now that's called interactive streaming and the ability to compensate artists for that and the ability to actually track those events has gotten very tough as of late we're uh, we're really antiquated in all of our accounting and reporting um, methods and it's a deep concern of mine it's something that I've been focused on for a long time because you start hearing these stories of Peter Frampton you know saying, okay well my song was streamed a gazillion times and I got like ten thousand dollars you know for mm-hmm. it from streamers what's going on and you start hearing more and more of those stories you know you ultimately as, as somebody like myself who makes my money off of royalties and, and advances you know you ultimately have to scratch your head and go like is this going to affect my career like is this going to change my ability to sustain that career, am I, am I going to remain successful, you know, what, what's happening here? Um, and, you know, it's really come into focus the last couple of years as streaming has become the dominant form of distribution for the music business. And I think we all owe it to ourselves to get in the mix and figure out, okay, wait, why are royalty rates low? Why is it hard to figure out whether they're accurate? And what are our vehicles to actually correct that? And when you start asking yourself those questions, you come up with some pretty hauntingly bad answers in the current music business and the current model. Um, I've actually gotten pretty proactive about it in the last few years and co-founded a tech company, a, a music tech startup company called Truestream. And what we're doing is Automatic accounting, um, automatic royalty calculation, or interactive streaming. And it's exclusively for interactive streaming to try and solve that problem. I founded the company because I was operating on a really erroneous assumption about the way those royalties were being tallied. I was operating under the assumption that, to me, seems to make a lot of sense, that since interactive streamers are digital companies, and they're obviously counting how many times they stream songs internally, I was under the assumption that then they were digitally spitting out to record labels and publishers and PROs those numbers on a That's daily exactly basis. what I assumed. Okay. It's, not true, and it couldn't be further couldn't be further from the truth. But it's a natural assumption because you're talking about computer companies who are super savvy. Yeah, you think it's so technical? Obviously- like,
0: obviously, they can just calculate it as it's played, and and it takes them nothing, like no effort at all. They just make that technology once, and it starts calculating it right. Like,
1: technically, they can, and technically, they do it in house, but they <laughs> don't share in a digital way that data with anybody. They operate on these monthly reports so you know and and it's very it's it's very complex because you will see analytics tools like spotify for artists and if you are a publisher you you will get a daily spin tally right from spotify but it's not each song it's like your top five songs will have these daily spin counts and then your artist if you're on spotify for artists you can see well Across Spotify, I I received a thousand spins today, but it's not sorted in terms of what songs of mine were spun to make up that thousand or where did each song spin? You'll see on Spotify for Artists that tool. You'll see, okay, well, I spun a thousand times today and I'm hot in Malaysia, right? But you don't know which song of yours is connecting in Malaysia. And so... It's very, very, very um, concerning to me when I discovered, wow, actually, everybody's still on monthly reports like they've always been with like Terrestrial Radio and stuff like that. But the monthly report from a streamer is like a bazillion plays. And so what they're doing is they're giving a lump sum of money that's supposed to be like a profit share um to all their different license uh vendors you know the publishers and the labels and whatever here's a chunk of money and here's what we streamed and here's what we played you know on our on our platform over the last 31 days and that file of how many things happened is gigantic so then it's up to the entities the the publishers the pros and the labels to go through these gigantic files and go all right well this is the lump sum we got for april we need to divide it per everything that's in this report plus we have as ascap and all the publishers and labels do favorable rates for hit artists and songwriters that are not the same as your base rate we have to go parse that out so those favorable writers get a bigger cut of this lump sum. It's it's absolutely insane to me um, that people are still doing this as as a largely manual activity with accountants and accounting departments, you know, looking through these statements and 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 sort of making these decisions on a monthly basis. To me, this is absolutely crazy because first of all, you could just tell out of the gate that it's going to have major, major flaws. Second of all, all of these entities that I'm referring to, whether it be Harry Fox Agency, which is the big licensing agency here, or whether it be your publisher, your PR or whatever, all of these people take a cut of your earnings in order to perform this flawed service. So <laughs> not only is there is there mistakes that are not in your favor as a songwriter because the tallying um, methods are so antiquated. You're actually, you may not know it, but you know you're giving away a skim off the top. Harry Fox is the primary licensing agency here. They take 11.5 percent before they even spit out to the publishers that they admin for. Right, your publisher, depending on your publishing deal, it could be a 92-8 split. It could be a 50-50 split. You don't know, but But they're taking, you know, a a high percentage of, of your money. And part of it is because they're performing this accounting service for you, this crazy accounting service. PRO, same thing. ASCAP and BMI are both running at a 12, 12 percent clip. And, you know, all of these factors go into why Peter Frampton doesn't get his, his due payment for the amazing music and the amazing use of his music that gets performed on a monthly basis. So we took a look at that. I, I linked up with a partner who's run a, a bunch of successful tech companies. And um, and I just said, you know, it's, this is crazy. We need to Uberize this whole thing. We need to make software that plugs directly into the streamers. We don't need any data that is proprietary to them we don't need their market analytics we don't need their advertiser data we we don't need any of the stuff that they don't want to share but what we do need is a limited data set which is what songs played today how many times and where if you give us that information and only that information we can plug all the royalty rates all the splits information everything else into our database And when we get a daily tally from the streamers for what what played and what happened, we'll just automatically do all the royalty calculating. And we are really passionate about that mission because once we implement a system like that, all of this other crap, all the people taking the skim off the top, all the mistaken accounting... All the times that your songs spin and it wasn't accounted correctly and it goes into something called the black box, all that stuff goes away because we're going to have this big brain in the middle between all of the stakeholders. That's sort of the mission that we're on. We've developed the software, we're raising capital, and we are invested in in many of the legislative conversations surrounding the Music Modernization Act and talking to all the stakeholders involved in that to say hey you know legislation is great you know we 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 really support that we think that's good but you know if you really want a solution that gets songwriters paid better we need a software solution we need to have that digital intake that calculator that is processing these transactions on a daily basis without all of the back and forth between accounting departments and and without all the human error you know we just this is all just numbers you know it doesn't matter how complex the numbers get if you and i co-write a song and you're represented by cobalt and i'm represented by universal and we license the song for different rates because those are our contract details TrueStream can see all that stuff and can reconcile all those discrepancies and just come out with a simple all right well the song streamed in Malaysia and this is our rate there and you get this and I get that for our splits and our publishing companies get this and that for their splits and you know literally on the system what you'll see is the song streamed on YouTube and then you'll see the the writers names next to the song and instead of seeing a bunch of percentages and a bunch of weird crazy crap that people don't necessarily understand you're going to see Okay, you just made 3 cents. I just made 4 cents. Your publishing company just made 7 cents and my publishing company just made 5. Interesting. And that's 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 what it should be. That's what I think songwriters want. And you know, we're not a payment service. We're not going to pay anybody. We're just informing all the people who do pay you exactly what you're supposed to get paid. So you're
0: not the collections which, agency. You're just creating that software that all of the other performance organizations and all that stuff, they use your software.
1: That's exactly right. And, and 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 the reason that we're doing that is because we just think that the biggest hole is the game of telephone between all of these people. In other words, we think the streamers are probably counting correctly, right? But then when they report to all the different entities that represent people like us, there's so much fragmentation in all those different agencies and different departments that there's a lot of questions as to what happens after those streamers Mm -hmm. make that count. So what we really want to do is be the the data information hub. Um, If we focused on processing payments, we may lose our ability to focus just on this main problem and you know, therefore, we're really just sort of laser focused on what we think is is the, the biggest issue in the new music business. And and there's a there's a reason behind this. Um, the biggest, biggest, biggest reason behind this is streaming is just starting. Right. We've traditionally at our biggest years been like a 20 billion dollar a year industry, recorded music industry. And we had a few years where it was really low. And streaming last year just started to look like the same money as we were used to uh, you know back in the mid-2000s. And that is exciting. What I'm looking at is the projections for Stream to actually double in gross annual revenue. Goldman Sachs by 2030 projects 41 billion dollars a year, which is twice our biggest year Hmm. so I look at that and I go "Well, well okay well if we're the ones creating the music and everybody's saying that the gross revenue parallels our biggest years why are my friends going out of business and why are songwriters getting paid less than ever first of all and second of all if we don't correct that problem when the gross doubles in 2030 yeah Are we still going to have, you know, is anybody going to figure this out? Yeah, who's pocketing all that money? Yeah, well, you know, you can see what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. What's happening is your Spotify service gets bundled with Samsung or your Apple gets um, bundled with your AT&T or T-Mo's giving out free title or whatever it is. They're bundling the service, right? And so the projected revenue, the Goldman Sachs projection, is based on... That gross, which is actually going to go to those network providers, the AT&Ts, the Sprints, the Timos, who are who are really actually the distributors distributors for our music, right? Mm-hmm. There's no roadmap for how we leverage better prices from them. It just doesn't exist. So the benefit to implementing this sort of digital system, this TrueStream system, is that we'll actually be able to properly commoditize the work that we're doing and we'll actually have data to stand on to say you know what that that 41 billion you know we can literally tell you that the music business is generating this much and is responsible for this much of that revenue and without us without our content you've got nothing yeah so we need our rates to go up. The only way to say that to a network provider or to a data company is by speaking their language, which is data, right? You can't just say, hey, we've got Beyonce or we've got Justin Bieber, and we're going to hold out until you give us a better rate. That's a flimsy conversation, and it's not working now, and it won't work in the future. The only way to do it is to go, here's here's our numbers. We just collected this data, and we, we can show you unequivocally that this content is worth this much and so we want our rates to be you know whatever they are yeah. uh, so you know true stream really can provide that clarity and provide that that ability plus we'd be streamlining accounting for all stakeholders which saves them a ton of time and money and also you know we can mitigate a lot of the lawsuits that are occurring you know instead of instead of a 1.6 billion dollar lawsuit to Spotify that is basically saying where's my money what happened at a certain point in time you're going hey true stream i'm missing revenue from 2015 from april for this song what happened and we're keeping a digital record of everything so we can go all right well it looks like Spotify missed you know it spun this many times but they they didn't pay you for it so let's go call their department their accounting department and go hey we've got this support ticket you know this artist is missing revenue from 2015 in april we see that it's spun this many that it streamed this many times what's going on and having that kind of digital record will pretty much keep everybody honest that, that's so, super
0: powerful it's
1: right on i mean it's it's just based on that false assumption which you had as well which is I mean, I just assumed this is how they were doing it. I was (laughs) blown away. You know, not even record labels are getting that kind of data spit out on a daily basis. Nobody gets it. It's considered proprietary data by these tech companies. I'm not even sure if that's legal. And that's part of the thing that we're looking at is, is it actually like as copyright owners, we have the right to know what's going on with the stuff that we own, that we license to these services. For sure. So I'm not, I'm not even sure if it's legal for them to say that we're not allowed to get these limited data sets that we're asking for.
0: Interesting. So obviously TrueStream is working with the labels and with Spotify and all that kind of stuff to make this transparency happen. Um, now, to take it one step further, as as a songwriter, can a songwriter sign up for TrueStream to at least see what's happening and be able to connect everything? Or are they still going to rely on that label to give them their findings?
1: So it's the vision of us is that or our vision is that um, labels will still be, you know, accounting to everybody. And that we will be a service for the labels to streamline that accounting. Our business model is a software as a service, you know, that you would subscribe to. We're not taking a cut. You know, we, we don't, we have no interest in that. But we just look at ourselves as sort of the QuickBooks for royalty accounting. Um, just like you would subscribe to QuickBooks to go, okay, I'm trying to organize all these financial transactions and all this stuff that happened. You know, our service is the exact same thing is it's it's automatic, but it's it's basically a, a subscription service for labels, for publishers, for PROs, for advocacy groups to go, OK, you know, we're subscribing to this service to streamline our process so that we can account to you better. And, you know, in in so doing, if if you're an advocacy group, if you're a songwriter's group, if you're a songwriter from North America, um they would be able to subscribe to TrueStream as well and be able to inform their writers. Got it. Um, so, you know, we're looking for transparency on all sides, but but it would still be ASCAP accounting to you or your label accounting to yeah, you. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that that's one of the things that I certainly find frustrating with all of these royalties is that I kind of just get an email every quarter saying, here's here's the money that's in your bank account. And kind of a vague description of how many times it's been played, and I don't really have much of many details other than that, you know. And it's like, okay, well, I guess that's it, you know. I, I, I guess. Are you
1: so? Are you so I am so can. Yes. So can right, right. Um, and so and so what? And then so the issue is like you get a check. You you don't have the ability to like audit SoCAN or 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 questioned it in any way. I mean, you, to
0: be honest, I haven't ever tried, um, right. but I've never been led to believe that I could. And and I guess to your point of all of these, like this kind of game of broken telephone along the way, I think it could be hard to figure that out, wouldn't it? Without a program um, like TrueStream.
1: It is it is actually impossible. Um, and uh, the reason is, is that you would you would need a true stream you would need a service that actually gets reports from all of the different entities that socan gets reports from so you know it's it's impossible it's also and i don't know socan's agreements with ascap to my knowledge writers when they become a member of ascap give away their ability to audit you're not a, you're not allowed to hire a cpa to audit ascap which you know, and I and don't get me wrong, ASCAP provides amazing services, and I'm not um, beating them up. But the fact that a copyright owner relinquishes their right to audit or access data about their the material that they own is totally crazy, and I'm not even sure if that's legal. And it's actually something that I'm working on right now is to find out if that membership agreement, if that clause that, that, you know, sort of requires me to give away my rights, I'm not even sure if that's legal. It's not legal in other domains like property ownership, uh, or any other, um, products that you own, that you license in, in other worlds, this, this practice doesn't, Occur. Um, and that if you are a property owner, you do have the right to get an accounting for what's going on with your stuff. So it's something that we're investigating very heavily because you know we we just feel like people like yourself, it's not that you should be paid more than quarterly or biannually. It's more that you should at least know what's going on as musicians we're running our own businesses mm-hmm. so if we can't do long range financial planning then it's very frustrating right now i'm waiting for my royalties i won't know what the royalty amounts are until september 30th at the earliest and you know my family's trying to do some long range financial planning we're trying to figure some stuff out and it's it's very frustrating because i literally won't know what my royalty payout is going to be until October. And so when we're trying to plan, it's like super frustrating. And I think a lot of musicians feel the way that you and I do, which is, wouldn't it be nice to actually know on a daily basis what's going on. So for you? so TrueStream
0: is oh. generating this data in real time. Essentially
1: it's it's the, the original vision was real time. Um, there's there's a hiccup with real time in terms of interactive stream and the hiccup is that youtube and spotify they all have this um 30 second requirement which is if you and this makes sense to me if you play a song and you didn't mean to play it you're only going to play it for like two seconds that is not a stream right but if you play it for 30 seconds or more then it is That's the, that's the guideline that everybody adopted. And so, you know, originally the vision was real time, but when we were looking at the tech for that, we wouldn't have had the ability to distinguish between what was a two second stream and what was a 30 second stream. And so we would have been counting inaccurately. So what we're looking at now is a daily basis because Spotify and YouTube actually do their own internal accounting and their own internal auditing that, um, determine whether it was a real stream or not. So what we've decided is, you know, once a day is, is good enough because they're already doing all of that accounting for whether it was a real stream or not or whether somebody was just sitting on their own page playing something on repeat they they have little algorithms that that tell them all that stuff and that you know determine for them what was officially the tally so once a day is what we're looking at and it's basically you're getting yesterday's report so it's whatever happened yesterday
0: Yeah, that makes sense yeah because i always found that really fascinating too because I don't know how it is in the States, but at least in Canada, when when it comes to our royalties with SOCAN and that kind of stuff, they're usually paying at least three quarters behind. So I, I would think that that information should be so readily available to at least project what you're going to get paid. And I, I'm actually just, as we were talking, I was looking at my SOCAN statements and I can see that they do have a uh, a statement preview to give you an idea of it. But I mean, there's really no way of verifying any of that information. It's just like, this is what you're going to get have have fun right so it's uh it is interesting like it it would be very fascinating to see kind of daily an audit of what's actually happening
1: yep absolutely and and just because we're all we're all independent contractors we're all you know running our own businesses and when you run your own business you got to be able to make projections and 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 make decisions and and do stuff based on your revenue. And so, if the best you can get, and we're on that three quarter lag as well, the best you can get is this sort of outdated, you know, quarterly or biannual information. It's 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 hard to run a small business like that. That's that's just the reality of running a small business. Mm-hmm. So you know, we we think that we've built a better mousetrap here. It's it's a revolution in terms of um black box money as well and black box money just to define the term is you know on radio and and really on stream there are a lot of songs that play and for whatever reason the rights ownership data is not attached to the works whether it's not in the metadata or it's not complete or the splits haven't been determined yet but the song got licensed and it's just playing out there in the ecosystem with no ownership data attached to it, a lot of this stuff generates revenue that nobody ever gets. And it's either that the publishers collect it and don't pay it out to people like you or me or PROs, or the streamers are holding it in escrow and don't pay it out to anybody. And this sounds like it would be a small fraction of what gets played, but Actually, this is like millions and millions of dollars every year of what they call unmatched revenue. And there's a lot of legislation in the States right now. Um there's uh something called the Music Modernization Act, which is a, a, a vast improvement in terms of what happens with this unmatched revenue and some methods for getting it to the writers of the songs and and, and closing loopholes and fixing mistakes and it's and it's really amazing. But it it, legislation alone, in my opinion, doesn't solve the problem. What TrueStream would be able to do is TrueStream will know how many times those songs streamed over the entire ecosystem. And TrueStream also gets an auto alert that says, Hey, we can't match this song. There's something wrong with the rights ownership data. We can't find it, or it's incomplete, or one database has it as a 40-60 split between you and me, and the other database has it as a 50-50. And there's this red flag. TrueStream automatically red flags that and says this is a black box event. Wow. Okay, and so we need to call one of the matching services. We need to call you know the publishing companies. We need to figure out what this work is. We need to figure out what's going on and why the rights ownership data isn't correct. We need to correct that data. We need to get it into our system. And the unique thing about TrueStream is that instead of at that moment things being correct going forward, we can actually go back in time and go, well, you know, we've already collected the data that says that this work has streamed 50,000 times across these various platforms. And it was twenty thousand on Spotify and twenty thousand on Apple and ten thousand on various others. And now that you've got the rights ownership data, you can go invoice Spotify and Apple and all the people who streamed it, and we will support that invoice and, and inform Spotify and Apple of this new this new revision. Um, and it really just cuts down on confusion. It will actually get black box money paid to the. To the creators of the work and you know we may run into some hostility from publishers (laughs) and CROs and we're just sitting on that money (laughs) yeah but at the end of the day right if we're looking and this is my my this is my soapbox and 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 the thing that I say to anybody who would sort of secretly resist what I'm saying about transparency is that a few million dollars a year that their hoarding of black box money is nothing compared to missing out on being able to capitalize on a double gross annual revenue in, in 2030. Mm-hmm. And the only way to capitalize for songwriters and the agencies that represent songwriters, the only way to capitalize on that growth is to have transparent and robust investor grade data to back up our calls for, for higher rates. So, you know, my big thing is like, okay, it's all about the money and you make a lot of money on black box. That's cool. But you're, you're leaving so much on the table by, by doing that. And the, so much on the table is, is vastly, you know, vastly more lucrative, you know, Mm -hmm. You need to, you need to get with the program and and get with transparency. Yeah. So and and I get and I get varying varying results from from those conversations. And I know it's sort of a, a monumental mission, but I can just tell you, since streaming is becoming the dominant form of distribution, tech minded people like myself and these companies that are capitalizing on on new tech, this revolution in terms of digitizing the accounting for stream it's going to happen, whether it's our company or a, a few companies or whatever it is, it's definitely going to happen. So anybody resisting that change is is going to get flushed.
0: That's amazing. And it sounds like you're working on a really great mission. And I I can't agree with you anymore. The transparency is key when it comes to all of this stuff. So kudos to you, man. You're, you're doing a great job on this stuff.
1: Thank you. And, you know, it's a uh, it's just something like we said, like you know, we've talked about before. This is a function of of me wanting to run a successful production and writing business. It sounds like I'm starting another business with True stream, and and I am. I've co founded this separate business, but really, it's to it's to maximize the return on 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 my investments. Uh, being a producer and writer, and that's what we're doing. We're investing in ourselves. We're creating these songs we're sending them out into the marketplace and then they're supposed to generate revenue for us. Mm-hmm. And if if the process for generating that revenue and collecting that revenue is monumentally screwed up, then we're not getting the best return on our investment. Yeah. So True True Stream is really a a function of me just going, well, if I if I if I have to invent software <laughs> and get it implemented just to maximize my returns as a songwriter and producer. I'm gonna do yeah. it, and we're talking to a lot of people here, like Sound Exchange, about that. We have talked to SoCan, great people, and they understand this stuff really well. Um, and uh, you know, we're we're talking to the RIAA, we're talking to NMPA, we're talking to a lot of people who have vested interests in getting songwriters paid paid better, and uh, hopefully, we can get this thing up and running. It
0: blows my mind that this hasn't already existed. So, <laughs> Me too. yeah, and, and Me too. it's just a lot of misinformation, I guess, and a lot of assumptions like we went back to and, and um, you know, just how everyone thinks these services actually operate. So
1: it's it's deceptive. You're going to find services that like dashboard royalties and collects and make it look like they have a system like this. And we've talked to those companies and and we go we ask the, the golden nugget question which is okay it's you're doing this nifty tech stuff you're dashboarding people's royalties you're collecting it all in one place you're doing market analytics for writers where are you getting your reports hmm. and people go oh well we get a quarterly report from Ddex and i go so you're basing all this amazing digital dashboarding all this great looking tech on quarterly reports that are 3 months that are 3 quarters behind hmm. And they go, oh, yeah, 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 that's how we do it. And I just go, all right, that's not, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> basically ear polishing a turd, yeah. for lack of a better, better term. So, you know, that's why we're hyper-focused on reporting. We're hyper-focused on digitizing just that part of it. And we think that that will revolutionize a lot of stuff.
0: Amazing. So just for clarification, TrueStream is already being used by these PROs and everything, or is it still in the uh, development phase?
1: Yeah, we're very early. We're in the development phase. We're in beta with a couple of very serious partners, and we're in conversations with a bunch of different partners. But we're not. We're we're very very early stage.
0: That's still awesome, though. At least you're 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 fighting the good fight for everyone. So that that's amazing.
1: Thank, thank you. Thank and, you. <laughs> know, hopefully we can get it. Hopefully we can get it rolling. You know, I I think it's in. Inve- I I am the sort of dude who's going. No, it's not just about songwriters. It's in the entire music industry's best interest to get this right. Yeah, We're talking about $41 billion a year only because everybody loves great music. So if all partners are not participating in that growth, we're not going to make great music. Mm-hmm. So then $41 billion goes away because the whole system is based on great content and you can't make great content for, for zero. So, you know, the, the, the realities of this ecosystem is that it's all hinged on whether or not Taylor Swift has another hit or, you know, whatever content drives marketing dollars. And so if you're not fostering the development of, of artistry, then you're dead in the water. So you know, we look at it like that, and we go, okay, you know, you're you're hoarding some black box income, but if you don't have, if you're not attached to amazing new content, then what good is it? Uh, you know, you really have to get. With it.
0: Yeah, and at the end of the day, it's just it's all money that people are rightfully entitled to. It's it's their own money. It's just uh, people are sitting on it. So by having that transparency, everyone will get paid out properly, and and uh, that that's humongous because. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people with that black box money that they, they don't know about. And so right. it, it's, it's huge. Man, great great Fair job long. with all of that. Thank you for putting that Thank all together. You. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Yeah.
0: Well, I know you said you have a uh, songwriting session that you got to get going to. And we've already probably gone over the time that <laughs> we said we would cut off at. But uh, how can people follow you online or learn more about yourself and TrueStream?
1: Sure, absolutely. So uh, the, the URL is truestream.com c-o t-r-u-s-t-r-e-a-m dot c-o and uh you can sign up for our mailing list there to get regular updates um you know i'm on i'm on twitter as at matt squire uh, at matt underscore squire rather um instagram is at matt squire music and uh you can get updates uh from me there and um i like I like it when people hit me up with questions, so feel free. You know, I'm I'm always uh, happy to um, respond and 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 try and help out people who have questions with recording or songwriting or whatever it is. Uh, I'm I like to make myself available.
0: Awesome. And obviously, you're really focused on TrueStream right now, but are there any other cool projects that you're working on that you can talk about?
1: Totally. Yeah. I mean, I'm about to start, uh, with the main, um, which is a reunion of sorts because I did, uh, their first album and, uh, we just had a series of great meetings. I, I absolutely love those guys. So I'm really excited to do their record and, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see, uh, we'll see what else is coming down the pike, but that's the main focus, uh, that starts in October.
0: Awesome. Looking forward to hearing it, man.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for being
0: on here, man. I really appreciate
1: it. And thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it and I look forward to uh, to continuing the conversation.
0: For sure. We'll have to have you back on here later on and talk about all of the advances that have happened as a result of TrueStream and everything you're doing.
1: Right on. Thank you.
0: Perfect, man. We'll talk soon. Thanks. So there you have it, guys. That was my interview with Matt Squire. I think he's doing some really amazing work these days, not just in his productions. He's obviously a very talented writer and uh, producer, and he's been working with lots of great artists. But I love the fact that he's fighting the good fight and really working on helping the industry as a whole and giving back to other songwriters by working with TrueStream and... I love his mission of trying to create transparency in the industry and get people the money that they're owed, because that is a thing that a lot of people just simply don't know about. There is a lot of money on the table and there's a lot of bad reports. And I think that what he's doing is a really great task because it's a big one, that's for sure. But with what he's doing, it's going to help the industry. It's going to help the writers. And as the music industry becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and much more profitable, the money's going to be going back in the hands of the songwriters and the artists and the creatives where it belongs. So, um, I'm really stoked for what Matt's working on here, and I'm glad that we got to have him on the podcast. So hope you guys really enjoyed that, found it helpful, and maybe it's even inspired you to start looking into some of these performance rights organizations such as ASCAP, BMI, SOCAN, CSAC. There's a whole bunch of different ones depending on what country you're in, but definitely look into them because there is money out there. And if you're writing music and it's being performed on the radio or in venues, or you, you can even get paid if you're playing shows. So definitely look into those things because there's money out there that could be yours. Now, if this is your first time listening to the Master Remix podcast, thank you so much for joining me in this episode. And I'd love to have you back as we release new episodes. So make sure to subscribe to the podcast on either the Apple podcast app or Android podcast apps, whatever you use, subscribe, and then you'll always be notified as new episodes come up. I've got a few great interviews in the pipeline, and I know that you're going to find them to be really helpful and you're going to learn a lot from them. Some very cool guests ahead. And also, if this is your first time hearing about Master Your Mix, please make sure to check out the website, MasterYourMix.com. And on the website, I've got a free download right now to help you with improving your mixes. It's called The Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. Basically, what I do on that is I show you how to use EQ and compression on a variety of different instruments so that you know exactly what areas to pay attention to, how to analyze your tracks, and know when you need to boost or when you need to cut with EQ, how to set your compression settings. And the idea is to help you get results much faster and give you a resource for when you're mixing. If you're not sure how to get more clarity out of your mix, then this resource will definitely help you. So make sure to check that out. It's 100% free, MasterYourMix.com. So that's it for today's episode. We'll talk soon. I'll see you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.